Last week, Pastor Aaron, as we began this series for chair discipling, looked at the Great Commission or the mission and then the Great Commandment, the motivation for the mission. And the mission was very simple. We understand rightly from God's word. Let me pause for just a second. How many of you are freaking out because I'm standing over here? I'll explain. Uh, I've just seen a couple people like, what's he doing way over there? We rightly understand that the word of God calls followers of Christ to be making disciples. That was the, the mission. And Pastor Aaron reminded us last week that the motivation for that mission is, first of all, our love for Christ, and then second of all, our love for others. So because we love Christ and because we're called to love others and those need to be, those others who don't know Christ need to be made disciples, we fulfill that commission under the umbrella of our motive or under the motivation of our motive, love for God and love for people. And I do want to take just a second and remind you, because I really appreciated last week when Pastor Aaron talked about the Great Commission, and he said, you know, sometimes... People hear the Great Commission and they think the Great Commission is only for great people. The Great Commission is only for great leaders or great teachers or, 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 or great, 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 great whatever. And the reality of Scripture is that the commission that we deem great because of what it is, is for all people who name the name of Jesus Christ. And so we must, we must latch Onto that, that we're all called to this, that all people who name the name of Christ are called to make disciples. Because after all, if you love God and if you love people, the task given to you is make disciples. Now, last week, Pastor Aaron also noted for us the tendency of the church today when they hear the word discipleship is to think exhaustively, or maybe exclusively is a better term, of a sit down, open your Bible, let me articulate truth from God's word to you. And while that is true, and that is good, and that is profitable and beneficial for those who would be a part of that, there's also the reality of living life with others for the purpose of building a relationship so that following Christ can be modeled in order that it can be followed, right? And so we live life with those who are less spiritually mature than we are in order that they might see us demonstrate what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. They're learning what it means to walk with Christ. Now I'm just going to flat out tell you, You do not learn that when you're only sitting at a table reading truth. Following Jesus is modeled. Following Jesus is demonstrated. And this reality of discipleship, looking into God's word, living life together, it's different even yet from what scripture calls us to. When Jesus says, go, or as you are going, be making disciples. It's really interesting. The Bible doesn't call us to discipleship. The Bible, the Bible calls us to be making disciples. Making disciples is the process 
by which a believer meets another person where they are at in life as an unbeliever or as someone who is spiritually less mature and invest in them until they themselves have become trained and reproducing disciples themselves. All right? The goal, as we're going to see, is reproduction. And the truth to making disciples is this. If there is no reproduction, there are no disciples being made. That's a very simple concept, right? Like, if there is not fruit of the reproduction, then we cannot say that is taking place. So we understand, hopefully, that the Word of God is saying we are to be reproducing when it calls us to be making disciples. And so what is the evidence of making disciples? It's disciples who are making disciples, and then there's more disciples. That's the evidence. And again, most of us at least understand, even if it's just in a very introductory context, most of us understand, if you didn't before today, you do because I just told you, that the Bible says that we are to be making disciples, And so I would submit to you this morning that the difficulty lies less in the command, be making disciples, and more in the execution or the method. How do we make disciples? So I want to give you an illustration. I'm going to tell you it's kind of a story, but it's kind of true because we've seen this. But inevitably, we're going to have a storm come through one of these days. When I say storm, I mean a literal storm where the wind blows and it rains and it thunders and it lightnings. And that wind's going to start blowing. And these massive Bradford pears that exist along our driveway, like the rest of them, are going to snap and fall on the driveway. Right? We can all see and understand this. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know there used to be uh, trees all along the driveway. And you drive down there now and there's like two. And the two that are there like kind of hanging your way when you pull in, like you hit them with your car, you know, like because they're big and they're overgrown. And when the storms come in, they snap them off and they break. And every single person who would drive up the driveway and see this broken tree laying in the driveway would rightly conclude, we need to get that tree moved. It's in the way. It's inhibiting people's ability to come gather for church. So that tree needs to be moved. And because I know many of you, and I've known many of you for a number of years, and I know how many of you operate, probably within a matter of just a few moments, there will be a number of people seeking to remove this tree from blocking the driveway. So let's have a hypothetical scenario now. Because that last one wasn't hypothetical. It's going to happen. They break all the time. Hypothetically, let's say six people show up to remove the tree that's down over the driveway. And while they all understand that the reason they're here is to move the tree, they just start doing their own thing. They just start going about it in their own business, according to their own skills, their own ideas, their own attempts to remove the tree. And you might be thinking, well, that would be great. In no time flat, six people, they're going to have that tree gone and dragged out of the way. On the surface, it seems like a great thing, but what happens if someone's plan of removal includes a chainsaw and someone else's plan does not? What happens if there's an individual unaware that there's a chainsaw, and I understand this is hypothetical, you got to go with me because you could probably hear the chainsaw, but, but imagine you're out there working and reefing trying to move the tree and somebody right next to you is trying to use a chainsaw. 
Now, we all understand the, the potential consequences, the catastrophe that can result of, of, a, of a chainsaw being used without clarity to what's happening. What if one person's plan of the six who shows up says, well, the west side of the driveway is closer, so let's just pull it out of the way for now and we'll carry on about our business. But at the same time, somebody else says, well, if we drag it to what they don't say, they think, well, if we drag it to the west side of the driveway, it's still going to be there and then we're going to have to deal with it. But if we drag it to the east side of the driveway across the lower parking lot, we can put it out in the field where it's out of the way and we don't have to worry about it. So the guy that wants to drag it to the west gets on the west side of the driveway. The guy that wants to drag it on the east gets to the east side of the driveway. And both men, with all their might, begin trying to pull the tree. What happens? The tree doesn't go anywhere. Because there's, there's uh, different methods at play for removing the tree. So the tree is not going anywhere because it is being pulled in opposite directions by individuals who are well-meaning, who want to see the tree move because they understand that it's inhibiting the church's ability to carry on the ministry of making disciples. And in each of these scenarios, only, I only suggested two possible scenarios. The point is this, the tree is not moving. The tree's not moving. So people are going to start lining up up the driveway and down Vine Street and the backs, back over here on the, next to the recycle plant and our t- t- driveway's going to get backed up because as though we're trying with all our might, the tree's not moving because we're all just functioning in whatever way we think this is how we get the tree moved. And I would submit to you this morning that this is the approach oftentimes that churches take to making disciples. They've got their own ideas, they've got their own thoughts, and they, they, they may be well-meaning and they want to make disciples just like they want to get the tree moved, and they may want to do it in whatever manner that they determine is best. When it comes to making disciples, there might be some fruit from that. The tree's not moving, but there, there might be some fruit, because there is more than one way to skin a, tat, skin a cat. But what if we could take out the guesswork? What if we could cut out some of the, the guesswork of maybe this will work, maybe this won't work, maybe this is effective, maybe this isn't effective. Well, I want to do it this way, I want to do it this way. What if we could cut some of that out and simplify the process of making disciples? What if this simplification could take place because there is a method that ex- or because there was a method that existed that was clear, concise, and proven effective? Those are great questions. And they present a great reality. And obviously, I ask those questions because I want to submit to you that I believe that there is a method. That there is a clear, concise, and proven effective way to make disciples as we've been called to do. And part of the reason we know that this method we're going to look at is effective and it's clear and it's concise is because the master demonstrator of the task of making disciples modeled the method for us. 
So the disciples following Jesus didn't show up and, and decide of, based on their gifts and their abilities and their thinking how it was that disciples would be made as Jesus called them to do. No, as we're going to see, they followed Jesus, they learned from Jesus, and then they did what Jesus did. So we take the guesswork out of it. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to look at a few select scriptures and together we will see the method that Jesus utilized to make disciples. And I also want to be clear with something else this morning. Jesus did not do discipleship. Jesus made disciples. And those are two different things, as we've already noted. Jesus made disciples. And he used a very simple method of making them. And one of the primary keys to this method was the willingness of Jesus to know and understand that people are in different stages of their spiritual lives. Right? We talked about this a little bit already. Meeting people where they're at. Recognizing those who are less spiritually mature than we are and meeting them where they're at. And this morning we will look at four various stages of the spiritual life. And I cannot overstate this truth. Every single person is in one of the following four stages of their spiritual life. There are no exceptions to the rule. Every single person is in one of the following four stages of their spiritual life. And with that... I imagine you may have just connected the dots as to why I'm here and there's four chairs there. And so this morning we're going to examine the method of disciple making that Jesus used. And in doing so, we will utilize each of these four chairs to define and to describe the spiritual state of all of mankind. Because everybody is in one of these four chairs. And so maybe this morning, here would be my encouragement to you. We're going to try to make some application as we start. Be thinking. Be asking yourself this morning, which chair am I in? Because you're all in one of them. Which chair am I in? Each chair is defined by a challenge issued by Jesus. Challenge number one is this. Come and see. John 1, 35 through 39. Come and see. Here's what we read according to John. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. And as he walked by and said, Behold, guys, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now this is a passage that is probably familiar to most, most of us. And in this passage we see the invitation of Jesus to these people who oh, are in the vicinity, who are in the midst. He says, come and see. 
And so we're introduced to Jesus by John as the Lamb of God. We know he's the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. And when these two disciples, they hear this, again, these are disciples of John, they hear this, they start walking behind Jesus. They literally physically start just following Jesus. And when Jesus notices, I mean, let's be honest, he knew they were there, but Jesus gives them a a time as they follow behind them. He notices, he very plainly turns and asks to them, what is it that you seek? They tell him they desire to know where he is staying, calling him rabbi, which, as the text tells us, simply means teacher. And here's the first invitation. Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see, and come and you will see where I am staying. The invitation here is simply show up. And in showing up, the men will learn about this Lamb of God. I imagine the encounter between Jesus and these two men on the day when they go and they stay with Jesus where Jesus stayed, because that's what John tells us happened, that what took place was much like what took place following the resurrection of Jesus prior to his ascension, where the two men were walking on the road to Emmaus. And then the Bible tells us, Luke records, that Jesus appeared, and he starts walking with them, and he starts teaching them all about how the scriptures demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus teaches these two men on the the road to Emmaus, eventually revealing to them that he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Now I imagine this interaction of Jesus, they literally acknowledge him as what? Teacher. Rabbi, which means teacher. So when they're with Jesus, he's teaching them. He's modeling for them. And so as he goes with them, he's teaching them all about the scriptures and how he was and how, or who he was and how they relate to him in light of this. I want you to understand something. At this juncture, these two men are in chair one. When Jesus says to them, come and you will see, these two men are in chair one. In chair one, I want you to understand, this is where these two men, these two disciples were, and this is the chair where the majority of mankind lives. And we're going to call this chair spiritually dead. They did not know Jesus. They could not know him in a saving way. They did not have a relationship with God based on faith in who Jesus was. These men were spiritually dead. They have no claim to the goodness of God. They have no claim to his grace and his mercy as found in Jesus. There is no claim to salvation. There is no right relationship with God. And again, I want to reiterate, those in chair one who are spiritually dead, this is the case for all people over all course of human history until faith in Jesus comes into the picture. You are born spiritually dead and you stay spiritually dead until you trust Christ. But something happens with these two men. Something happens with these two men as they stay with Christ. The invitation to come and see has resulted in a miracle. 
something miraculous for one of these men who was spiritually dead takes place. One of the men who followed Jesus to where he was staying and who learned from him was a man named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother Andrew. And while John does not record the details, we know that a miracle takes place while Andrew is with Jesus because of what Andrew tells his brother in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. Andrew believed in Jesus. He's no longer spiritually dead. He's heard this reality of of who Jesus was and what Jesus would accomplish, and he believes in it, and he begins exclaiming to others, we have found the Messiah. I want you to understand something. Number one, finding the Messiah is predicated upon the Holy Spirit, right? So Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. It's drawing them to himself that when they hear these truths, when they interact with those who are following Jesus, that faith can be born. Okay? So this is, this is a reality where as, as God works, okay, there's, there's this peaking of an interest, if you will. But there is no salvation apart from Jesus, and we would all agree with this, right? But the reality is, if you don't come and see, you will never know. So the invitation, the initial invitation has to be, as we see modeled by Jesus, come and see. And perhaps you, like Andrew, might proclaim you have found the Messiah. And this discovery of Andrew leads us from chair one to chair two. And in chair two is where we see uh, play out challenge number two. The invitation now not to just come and see, but to follow me. John 1, verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Excuse me, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. This is not the same as come and see. Come and see demonstrates curiosity. Follow me demonstrates commitment. Jesus is moving past merely inviting those who are curious to saying, now that your curiosity has been quelched and you've heard some of these realities of who I am and what I've done and what I've accomplished and what I'm offering, namely eternal life in Christ Jesus, now you follow me. You demonstrate the commitment. And in this invitation to follow Jesus, again, we see this is the reality of chair two. And I want you to understand something. Spiritually dead people cannot follow Jesus. Spiritually dead Jesus, spiritually dead people cannot follow Jesus. Only those who are spiritually alive can follow Jesus. And this is chair number two. Spiritually alive. I want to go back just a second because I want to add something I forgot. I come up here this morning, and I was putting these papers up here and kind of working through this, and 
These chairs were actually in Pastor Aaron's garage, and he had asked me last week, he said, do you have any wood glue? Because one of the chairs is broken. So I give him some wood glue, and then he puts the chairs up here, and he gets everything kind of situated out last week for, you know, before he preached. And it was really interesting to me. I don't know if he did this on purpose or not, but the chair that needed the wood glue was this one. I didn't move them this morning. I didn't make them fit. It, didn't, it, was, it literally was an illustration of the Holy Spirit. This chair is broken. And spiritually dead people are broken. And spiritually dead people, the only hope for a spiritually dead person is that they would be made alive. We have all encountered the reality of death in our lives. Every one of us in this room has been long enough, has been alive long enough to deal with the reality of someone that has passed away. You can't fix something that's dead. You can't improve something that's dead. The only thing that can change a state of someone who's dead is that they would be alive. Did you guys see that article a couple weeks ago of a lady whose family thought she had passed away in a car crash? And while they were at her funeral, she sat up out of the casket. But you know, it's really, it's sad. Because could you imagine the horror? Could you imagine being there and going through that? The lady then died after succumbing to her injuries from the car crash. But you see, you can't fix dead The only cure for death is life. And only spiritually alive people can follow Jesus. So they're invited to come and see, and then they're invited to follow, to to be made alive. And when those who come and see believe, they move into chair two. And the idea is simple, really. Follow Jesus once you've believed, as this is the marker of believing in Jesus. You say you believe in Jesus, then you must follow Jesus. That's the marker of the belief that you proclaim, that you follow him. And to follow is to walk in the footsteps of whomever you are following. We don't get a lot of snow here in southern Indiana, but we get enough for everybody to see the picture of following in the footsteps of someone who is in front of them. If you have small kids or you have older kids who were once smaller, you can absolutely understand and relate to the picture of going out into the snow with your kids. And when you start walking, what does every little kid on the planet do when they follow their parents through deep snow? They step in their parents' footsteps. They follow their parents or whoever is in front of them. They walk exclusively where the person in front of them walked. And we would rightly watch that, and we would say what? They are following the person in front of them. And so Jesus is inviting these men now to follow him, and literally what he's saying is, I want you to walk as I walk. And in doing so, I want you to learn what I am doing. And what is the primary thing that Jesus is doing? Making disciples. He says, I want you to follow me. You see, the one who is following Jesus is no longer simply curious about Jesus. As we've alluded to, they are now committed to Jesus. And in the rest of this chapter of John's gospel, we see the trickle down of making disciples. Jesus calls Philip to follow him, 
And then Philip carries on what he has seen in Jesus by telling Nathanael that they have found whom the prophets wrote about, this Jesus of Nazareth. And then Nathanael, doubting this to be true, asks Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? And then don't miss what happens. Nathanael says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. (laughs) What? This invitation had been issued by Jesus to come and see who Jesus is. And when these men believe and begin following Jesus, and then this exchange takes place where Philip meets Nathanael, where he's at, where he's less spiritually mature than Philip, and he begins talking about Jesus. And and Nathanael says, I don't know, Philip. They say nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And Philip says, come and see. Why? That you might know that Jesus is the Messiah. So here is the invitation, our original invitation to come and see Jesus. Because before you can follow him, you must come and see him. Again, the person who is in chair two is the person who is spiritually alive following Jesus. And the difference between chair one and chair two is salvation. It's faith in Christ. And some of you might have thought, you know, I get, I get the, the metaphor of the chairs. I get, Pastor, that you're talking about this reality that every human being is in one of these four chairs. But couldn't you have at least put them in the center of the stage? Why, why, why are they closer to the piano? Why, why are they off center? Well, if you look between chair one and chair two, there's something there. It's the cross. The difference between chair one, those who are spiritually dead, and chair two, those who are spiritually alive, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's faith in a resurrected Savior where he's vindicated as who he said he was, who had accomplished what he said he would accomplish, that bids us then to believe in him and follow him. Listen, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we ought to follow him. Because every one of us is going to breathe our last breath on this earth at some point, And we will not only be spiritually dead, but we will be physically dead. So if you're telling me there's somebody who overcame death and is now alive, yeah, I want to hitch my wagon to that. The difference between spiritually dead and spiritually alive is faith in the resurrected Jesus. And so our progression continues. From chair two to chair three. I would submit to you it's in chair three where the world begins to be impacted for Christ. Where things really begin to change. Jesus moves past invitations, come and see, or the invitation to follow him. And he tells his disciples who do follow him the outcome of those who are following him. And he begins to demonstrate for them his method. He tells his disciples, those who are following him, that if they follow him, he will make them fishers of men. Here's my method. Here's what I am going to teach you. Here is what I want you to do. I want you to stop fishing for scaly vertebrae, reptiles, whatever they are in the sea. And I want you to fish for people. And in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, 
We read this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, if you're, if you're really following along closely this morning, you might think, now, wait a minute. You just told us that Andrew was one of John's disciples who went with Jesus to see where he was staying and then proclaimed that they had already found, or, you know, that they had found the Messiah. And now Jesus says to this same Andrew and his brother Simon, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Well, here's what you need to understand. When Jesus invites Andrew and Simon Peter to follow him and he will make them fishers of men, they'd already been living their lives with Jesus for about 18 months. They didn't just receive an invitation to follow Jesus and start making disciples. For 18 months, they lived with Jesus. They followed Jesus day in and day out, but he had not yet called them to set aside their lives and give everything for the cause of Christ. But that's what happens here in Matthew 4 when he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I always, I always used to marvel at how miraculous it would have been, right? To just like, oh, that guy said follow him, so I'm going to throw down my nets and follow him. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. These men were already walking with Jesus. But now he's calling them to begin employing the method that he is going to demonstrate for them. And immediately following this invitation, Jesus would take these men on six fishing trips, but not fish, people. So at this point, these men, they begin following Jesus for the purpose of becoming fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. Jesus called these men for a purpose. Everything that Jesus did was with intention. And that is not to say that prior to being called to make fishers of men and give up your lives and follow Jesus, that we're not productive for Christ or that we're not walking with him. Now we're still growing and we're learning. That was that following. Now we're committed to Jesus. But everything that Jesus did was intentional. And everything that Jesus taught and modeled was purposeful. And so we have to understand the significance of these men learning from Jesus over the course of these 18 or so months before he tells them what he's going to do with them. Now I'm going to make you fishers of men. He has a purpose for them. And that purpose is that they would fish men or make disciples. It's no longer just an, a, a, a verbal or a seemingly outward, if we're kind of walking with Jesus. It's no longer this, this just outward commitment to Jesus. Jesus is now calling these men to be contributors to the work of Jesus. He's calling them to something greater than merely following in his footsteps. But it's a, the fruit of having been following in his footsteps. I want you to understand this morning, if Jesus had not been purposeful, if Jesus had not been intentional, if Jesus Jesus had not raised up these men for the purpose of making disciples, 
then in about 18 months after this, there would be no Christianity because Jesus was going to die, rise, and then depart. And it wasn't Jesus who carried on his mission. Who was it? It was the fishers of men. It was those that Jesus had trained. After living with them for 18 months, he then called them and and began really calling them to contribute and be a part of this process of, of making disciples. He taught them and then he showed them. So these disciples who were following Jesus have now left the comfort and familiarity of fishing for fish. And they're now learning how to fish for people and make disciples as Christ had. And these are those who are in chair three. So they're not spiritually dead. They're not just spiritually alive. Now they are spiritually maturing. So they've been made alive by faith in the cross of Christ. And now in that life, they are beginning to live out the call to make disciples. They're they're growing in their understanding. And so those who are spiritually maturing are making disciples as they're following Jesus. They're reproducing just as Jesus called them to do. Just as Jesus did. Jesus reproduced. Right? He's the original disciple maker who poured into his disciples, training them on how to make disciples. So Jesus, as we're going to see, he reassures them that their reproduction of disciples will come under one condition, as long as they abide in him. This is the reality of being spiritually maturing. You notice it's not a one-time thing. Chair three is those who are spiritually mature. They've reached that plateau. No, they're spiritually maturing. It's an ongoing process that takes place over the course of the entirety of the follower of Jesus' life. And so this maturity happens when we abide in him, as he says in John 15. And abiding in him is the means whereby we go and we bear much fruit. And this is challenge number four. Go and bear much fruit. We see this again in John chapter 15 and his interaction with the disciples. We looked at this just a few weeks before Easter as they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested. He's teaching them about the vineyard, the vine and the branches and abiding And this is the goal of the life that is following Jesus. Not comfort, not complacency, not convenience. It's about bearing much fruit. In chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you recall, when we were in John 15 together a month or so ago, we talked about what this bearing much fruit was indicative of. The fruit that Jesus is referring to is the fruit of making disciples. This is the crux of the matter. A person who has came and seen Jesus resulting in believing in Jesus or resulting in faith is a person who follows Jesus and is now contributing for the purpose of bearing much fruit. And so we go from 
just spiritually maturing, although there's an element here where we say, I've not sat in these, so hopefully don't fall. There is an element of, for those who are following Christ, you will always be spiritually maturing. You're always, there's a portion of the Christian life that's always lived in chair three. But the fruit of spiritually maturing The fruit of being in this chair and being in a a growth process of being more like Jesus is that you're spiritually reproducing. So Jesus says with his challenge to his disciples, you got to go and bear much fruit. And if the fruit is disciples, then the evidence that we've moved through the chairs and are sitting in chair four is that we are reproducing spiritual people as we have been made spiritual people. And to be spiritually reproducing is to be a disciple who is making disciples. And this was the whole point of Jesus training these men. That they would learn from him and then in him and then in learning from him, excuse me, that they would do what he did. And in doing what he did, the kingdom of God would not only survive after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but it would grow. And as it grew, because spiritual reproduction was taking place, the Father was glorified. The command to bear much fruit, this is the commissioning of the disciples. This is the, I've taught you what you need to know. I've modeled for you what you needed to see modeled. Now I want you to go, and as you go, bear much fruit. John 15, I just alluded to this, was interaction between Jesus and his disciples after having left the upper room for the final time, making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. Every one of us knows what happened after Jesus was arrested. He was murdered. And so Jesus met with these men. They walked with him. They learned from him. He modeled for them. And this whole method for the purpose of reproducing, because in a short while, he would be gone. He would no longer be physically present to to remind them or to show them again. So he taught them while he was with them, and he taught them well. You know how I know Jesus taught the original disciples well on the process or the method of making disciples? Because you and I are sitting here It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth and taught 12 men what it meant to make disciples, and we are still here. His method works. The tree is gone from the driveway. He showed up with a plan. He said, men, you're willing, and that's great. Here's what we're going to do. Do it. The tree's gone. Jesus came with a plan and a method that he modeled. And he made disciples who made disciples who continued to make disciples. Literally, think with me for just a moment as we finish about the impact 
of the method that Jesus made to make disciples. The original disciples of Jesus who walked with him and learned his method not only did so 2,000 years ago, they did so on the other side of the globe. The proof is in the pudding. The method of Jesus, when it comes to making disciples, it worked. It's the best there is, it's the best there was, and it's the best there ever will be. I want to finish where I started. Every single person is in one of these four chairs. They're either spiritually dead, spiritually alive, spiritually maturing, or spiritually reproducing. And I hope by now that there's at least a part of you that's saying, what what chair am I in? I, I do wonder what chair that I am in. Over the course of the next number of weeks, we will be examining these chairs and more specificity to each chair and what that looks like and what it is. And we want to talk about the process of moving from chair one to chair two and so on and so forth. And it'll be not too long. There's a, a tool that we've utilized as a leadership team that we've started looking at too that actually will give you a really good idea of which one of these chairs that you're in. And we've talked as a leadership team, we want to see this utilized amongst our people. And so just know that's more just kind of a very vague introduction, but over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be trying to engage, to, to, to evaluate, to take this assessment and to see, not based on what we think, not based on what pastor says or what the chairs say, but to take this assessment with the questions that we answer, where about to say, there's a pretty good chance this is the chair you're in. I will tell you before we begin that I believe the majority of people in this world are in chair one or chair two. And we'll talk. See, this is where I want to keep preaching, but it's already done in 45 minutes, so we got to wrap it up. But as we walk through it and we get there, you will understand why the majority of people who profess faith in Christ stay in chair two and never move to chair three. So be on the lookout for that. But be, be praying, Right? Be earnestly seeking that God would be, you know, challenging you over the course of the next number of weeks as we walk through this study together. Where, where am I at? Are you willing to be honest this morning, honest enough to say, well, as we walk through this and we look at what God's word says, maybe there's a chance I'm in chair one. Bare minimum, I'm in chair two, but maybe there's a chance we're in chair one. Maybe it's chair two. Maybe it's chair three. Maybe it's chair four. I don't know where you, well, I don't know what chair you guys are in. But we will know. We can know. And I'm excited to know. But more than that, I'm excited when we use these things as an illustration and we use them as, as a grid work and a framework. It's all for one purpose. To follow the method that Jesus has given to make disciples. If we don't make disciples, nothing else we do matters. Because that's what the word of God calls the people of God to do. To make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful, God, that your son, as we'll see over the course of the next number of weeks, God was faithfully obedient. He was willing And he came to teach God and to model 
and to leave behind a method that has been proven effective. A method of taking up the mantle of of making disciples. Father, I pray that we would look to that method and that we would be challenged by it. I pray that it would bring us encouragement, but I pray also, God, that it would bring to us the ability to earnestly consider what this looks like. Are we utilizing the method that Jesus has left? Are we following in his footsteps in the quest to do what he has told us to do? We just pray, God, that you would work in us and through us. Ultimately, God, the goal of making disciples, God, is because of our love for you. It's because we want to see you glorified. We want to see the world changed because Jesus came to change the lives of the people who lived in this world. And so, Father, help us to see the invitation of Scripture is not simply come and see. The invitation is not simply follow. The invitation is that in doing so, faith would begin, that that salvation would take place, and then that reproduction would, would be the result of modeling the methods of Jesus. I thank you for your goodness to us, God. I thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus. I thank you, God, for the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And I thank you that even as we looked at when our call to worship as we began this morning, that before the throne of God, we have a simple plea, and his name is Jesus. And he is interceding. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to look to him that our eyes would be fixated upon Jesus. That the cares and the concerns and the comforts of this world would lose their hold and their grip upon us and that we would passionately be able to say that we are following Jesus for the purpose of making disciples. Work in our hearts for your glory today. In Jesus' name we pray.